0: And we wanted to test this idea of whether playing on the same soccer team, whether that can build social cohesion among these displaced people. On this question of how did they change their attitudes and behaviors toward people on their team and in the league. uh, So at the beginning, there was a lot of reluctance on both sides. Uh, The Christian players, for example, were not speaking Arabic. They were speaking their own dialect, which the Muslim players couldn't understand. And the coaches actually intervened and said, "Okay, we're now going to be speaking only Arabic so that everyone understands. Um, You saw them sitting a bit closer to each other on the bench. As time went on, we started hearing a story about one of the mixed teams that the Christian players had chipped in to cover the taxi fare of the Muslim guys on their team.
1: If you're feeling frustrated by the fact that the world appears more divided than ever before, and perhaps even losing hope at the ideal that groups from different backgrounds can thrive together, well, this episode will trigger a little light. Welcome back to the Brain and Brand Show. I'm Timothy Maurice and what a delight it is to bring you today's episode. In a moment, you'll hear from Dr. Salma Musa, who studies social cohesion after conflict. She's a postdoctoral fellow at Stanford's Immigration Policy Lab and Center for Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law. We got a chance to catch up over Zoom at 9 a.m. her time in California and 7 p.m. my time. We explore her passion for social cohesion, why she believes groups from different backgrounds can coexist and accomplish goals together, even after they've experienced intergroup conflict. In line with my mission for this show, I want to bring you the best research minds who are on the ground producing research that offer insight into how our brains work, how and why we behave the way we do, and ultimately, how we can design a life and story that aligns with our highest aspirations in this conversation we explore two of Musa's papers both involving soccer firstly we look at how Liverpool's soccer superstar Mohammed Salah influenced Islamophobic behaviors and attitudes and then we discuss her research on what happened when she put Christians and Muslims together on soccer teams in a post ISIS Iraq we close the episode by showing the parallels between soccer and your everyday working and social experiences and how you can apply these social cohesion insights on a daily basis. Whether you are from a stigmatized group or a leader simply on a mission to build connectedness between your team and communities, you'll find this episode rewarding. I bring you Dr. Salma Musa. Enjoy. Salma Musa, welcome to the Brain and Brand Show.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: I really appreciate you making time to share your work. According to the Oxford Dictionary, the definition of cohesion is to form a united whole. In America, the framing of a united whole is the United States. In South Africa, it's called the rainbow nation. The ideal of social cohesion is framed under the rainbow nation. So before we jump into your research, I want to explore why you think and believe a united whole or cohesion should be the goal.
0: So I'll preface this by saying that I don't think it should always be the goal. Mm. There are lots of instances where two groups that look like they're in conflict, what's really happening there is it's just straight up oppression. And there's no need necessarily for those two groups to try to get along. And we should not um, tolerate certain very extreme oppressive elements in society. Uh, For the most part, uh, it should be a goal because social, co- I mean, in and of itself, it's, it's a worthy goal, but social cohesion actually correlates and it comes along with all these other positive outcomes like economic development, political development, democratization, support for redistributing wealth, uh, quality of governance, quality of public goods. So it seems like this is really the key. And if you can get ethnically diverse societies or just diverse societies to to be cohesive, you can unlock all these other positive things. So. I'll say two things to your original question. The first is that we don't necessarily need to hide our differences in order for social cohesion to work. There is one thing that does unite us, which is that we're all humans, and that's actually a very powerful thing. If you can get people to empathize, for, there's research showing that um, just getting people to engage in this perspective, taking exercise, like when was, what was a hard thing that you had to go through? When was a time that you felt isolated? And that exercise makes them more supportive of transgender rights, for example. So this kind of thread of common humanity and common obstacles might actually be enough in some cases. And the second thing I'll say is that uh, social cohesion can also look like we just we know how to cooperate to achieve a common goal, even though we're not exactly the same. So it's more of like a behavior rather than we have a shared identity. It can just be, okay, we're not the same and we acknowledge that we're different, but we can still have the minimum level of trust going on for a society to function.
1: I have a former partner whose father was a prince in Swaziland, a little small country outside of South Africa. And in one conversation, a sort of a casual conversation randomly, he said to me that in some of the stories passed down from his father who was King Sabuza, who is noted as one of the wisest kings in history because he he helped negotiate liberation without conflict. And he says that part of the reason why Black Africans are late so often was that there was it was a war strategy. Because they didn't have all the tools and the weapons and so forth, they would show up at different times and often very late to catch the enemy off guard. You know, so they developed inherently in their value system, this idea that we want to catch you off guard, and that it was necessary to navigate in a way where your precision was not an advantage. And this now plays out in a very fascinating way, and it prevents cohesion, because if the hierarchy of your value system in one culture is, I must be on time, and the other one is I'm trying to catch you off guard. You know, my, I'm, bringing, I'm sharing this because I find sometimes it's the simple things that prevent cohesion and simple things in our value system and as we go through this i want to i really want to talk about some of the simple things okay
0: absolutely i mean this is this is totally where i focus my research it's that everyday experience of what does your interaction look like with someone who's different from you on a day-to-day level like at the supermarket at a restaurant Uh, someone who's on the same football team as you, uh, and how do those interactions look like? And things like different norms about punctuality can be something that then becomes very symbolic and it's associated with the whole group. And so it matters.
1: I want you to share a little bit about your upbringing and if you've ever experienced ideal social cohesion.
0: Wow, that's a great question. So I think back at two points in my life that really stand out as being Id- almost ideal cases case of social cohesion. And both of them involve schooling systems, okay. which can often be weaponized for the opposite goal. But in my case, um, it was pretty effective. So the first was my experience going to Canadian public schools for three or four years when I was uh, up until the age of nine or 10.
1: Which and part of Canada? In Toronto. Okay. And so
0: I had just come, I, I, I am Egyptian and I had lived in Saudi Arabia and we moved to Canada and it was completely new to all of us. Like, you know, we had hadn't seen snow, you know, none of that. And <laughs> when we arrived and went, when I got into these public schools, what I really loved was that they allowed me to still be Egyptian and also start to adapt and adopt this new Canadian identity. So I just became Egyptian Canadian and that felt so natural to me. And I felt so comfortable saying I'm Egyptian Canadian. I'm half Egyptian, half Canadian. And it, it made a lot of sense. And the schools really taught us that like, you can be whatever you are. And in addition, you are Canadian. It's like a hyphenated and additive thing. Not that you have to replace or choose different identities, which I, which really worked well for my situation. Then I had moved back to Saudi Arabia and I would tell people I'm Egyptian Canadian. And my classmates would say, Oh, but which one of your parents is Canadian. And clearly if you see Mm. my parents and if you see me, you know, I'm, (laughs) I'm not, you know, white Canadian. And so I eventually just stopped saying I was Canadian because people just didn't believe me and they gave me so much pushback. And I thought at least it was special for a time that I was able to say that I was two things at once before the world started to challenge me on that outside of Canada. And the second time was when I was actually in British private schools in uh, Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. And there it's really interesting because it's expats who go to the school. We're all expats. Uh, there's there's some children who are actually from the from the UAE, but very few and so we all have this shared identity of, oh, this is not our country. We're kind of foreigners here. And so we all stuck together and no one really knew where anyone was from. Like we didn't really ask. We just It just wasn't relevant. It wasn't salient. It wasn't an important thing in that social structure. Um, and I thought that that school actually did a really good job of making us feel like we were in one community.
1: So I don't want to make any assumptions about why you're passionate and interested and you've kind of dedicated a huge chunk of your life to this work. So I'm just going to ask you, why why does this matter so much?
0: Part of it is definitely my personal experience, like ping-ponging around the Middle East and Canada and um, now the U.S. and France and other countries. And it started to become clear to me that in some social settings, I was seen as Arab. In other settings, I was seen as Canadian. In other settings, it was my religious identity mattered. And, you know, I'd be in job interviews where someone would ask me, not just my religion, but my denomination. And that just seemed really crazy to me that it was so contextual how other people viewed me and how that then changed how I viewed myself and what, how I identified myself. And then you see like, unfortunately, all this political violence in the Middle East and other parts of the world. And it's, it seems to be based on identity and it didn't used to be that way. There's nothing inherent in our culture. (laughs) We, you know, Muslims and Christians and other groups have coexisted for centuries. And so this is not something that's unique to Middle Eastern culture that makes us, you know, somehow backwards and barbaric in this way. So it doesn't have to be like this. How can we just make life smoother and more stable and keep the Middle East as this rich place uh, that's a diverse fabric of different minority groups and keep, retain that diversity that unfortunately has been, has been emptying in the past few decades?
1: All right, cool. Let's dive into your research. We're going to explore two papers because I couldn't decide which one blew me away more. Okay. Oh,
0: wow. That's very kind.
1: Let's start with the study. Can exposure to celebrities reduce prejudice? The big effect, the Sala effect. Tell us a little bit about your interest in soccer and how you went down this journey.
0: Like a lot of people, I'm, I'm a soccer fan. Uh, it's a passion of mine, uh, watching more than playing. I can't say I was ever good enough to really uh, do well at the playing part. <laughs> But um, my friends and I were, you know, following Salah as many Arabs and many people in the Middle East do because we're very proud of him. And we saw this video that went viral of the Liverpool fans. I think it was um, I think it was a Champions League game against Porto where Liverpool won by some crazy margin. And the Liverpool fans were singing, um, if he's good enough, if he's good enough for me, he's good enough for you. If he scores another few, then I'll be Muslim, too. And later on in the song, they say, sitting in a mosque is where I want to be. And we were just stunned. I mean, not to paint football fans, you know, with a broad stroke, but that's not the kind of stuff you're used to hearing from, you know, hardcore, uh, traveling soccer fans. And we thought like, there must be, there, there might be something going on here. Like, can is Salah actually making people less Islamophobic um, among this population, which is not necessarily known for its tolerance? Um, and so we wanted to test that systematically. We wanted to bring the data to bear and actually test this question. We can see in the media, everyone's speculating. Is, is Salah reducing Islamophobia? And a bunch of different pundits and a bunch of different opinions. And, you know, being, uh, being quantitative social scientists, we wanted to actually put some numbers to that question.
1: Tell us a little bit about how you structured the research.
0: Sure. So there's this theory from the 1950s called the contact theory, And it says that positive cooperative contact across social lines. So basically just personal contact between groups can reduce prejudice and it can build friendships. And on the whole, this is a good thing for intergroup relations. Um, So we, there's also been this kind of new version of this literature, which looks at one-sided contact or virtual contact or exposure through the media or through TV. So a lot of the time people don't have that opportunity for face-to-face meaningful interaction, but the way that they meet minority group members is through TV or through sport or on social media or some other mediated way. And so we wanted to know, like, can we actually apply some of the lessons from contact theory to this case where it's not that traditional face-to-face two-sided interaction with Salah, obviously, but fans are exposed to him all the time, several times a week for a year, uh, through social media, through watching the games, they look at the warm ups and the practices, and you get a real sense of his personality on the pitch and off the pitch. Um, And so we wanted to really apply that theory to this particular instance.
1: Would you say that, I mean, the idea that Salah comes from a stigmatized group, it's it's a big part of, and I looked up stigma as well, because I was like, okay, let's let's really dig into this. And the stigma is a mark of disgrace would Mm. you say that many people on the opposite side of his culture felt or feel that that they've overcome a disgrace at all
0: yeah that's i actually wasn't aware that that was the kind of classical definition we use it so much as academics that we might be a little far removed from the original meaning Um, So I don't, I think maybe disgrace is a little too strong in this case, but there is definitely a negative valence, you can say, that's associated with Muslims in general. Like that is being a Muslim in the UK and a practicing Muslim, like in lots of parts of the Western world, it definitely has a mark that is typically a negative mark.
1: One of the things that I've been sort of mulling over that I really wanted to dig in with you is this sort of, I would call it a stigma cycle, right? So some sort of group with power who had a misunderstanding or literally wanted to drive a particular group in a particular direction. So they set up repressive policies, which led to poverty, which led to crime, which led to further stigma stigmatization. The idea of a celebrity like Salah to break that cycle is really, really, really powerful. And I was just thinking about just in terms of, if we use the soccer pitch, Uh, and sort of translate it to the workplace or to any other group or community environment. Do you believe that, you know, celebrity or any raised popular individual from this research, you believe that they can have that effect?
0: This is something we're hoping to look at um, in a book project, my co-authors and I, where we can actually track all these different athletes, like looking specifically at the Premier League, but also some other examples as well. And the question is, what is it about a public figure who is from a stigmatized group or from a disadvantaged minority group, what is it about them that can actually reduce prejudice? Because it doesn't always happen. So for example, being exposed to Colin Kaepernick in the U.S., who's famously kneels during the U.S. National Anthem, and it was a hugely polarizing issue. Exposure to him in in those moments is not necessarily going to reduce prejudice across the board. At the same time, you have, let's let's say, Raheem Sterling, who plays for Manchester City, who is by all accounts, a very nice person, an incredibly talented player. And yet the media just hounds him for, you know, for, for nothing and everything. Same with Marcus Rashford at at Manchester United. He's done this absolutely astounding campaign to feed a bunch of um, impoverished children in the UK during over the summer months. And he lobbied the government and it actually passed and he got funding to these underprivileged kids and yet, you know, the Daily Mail and these and these tabloids are still reporting on all the money he's spending on his houses. And so the question is, why, why is Salah, you know, the positive role model example, but these other examples are not necessarily doing what we expect when it comes to prejudice reduction. So we have a few theories. We don't know exactly what it is. But we think that it's important that the, that the public figure is successful at what they do. So during our period for the study for the Salah uh, paper, he was successful the whole time. Liverpool was successful the whole time. We even tried to prime people in, like, like a, in, a, in a survey experiment to think about his failures, like, oh, his second season, he's not doing as well. Um, and it just didn't work. People didn't believe it because they just know that he's doing so well overall. So that must be a key piece of the story. And so the question is, when he stops scoring goals or if he moves to another club, what happens then? If he's not performing and not lifting Liverpool up anymore, is this going to just reverse um, and that's really an open question and that that's something we want to look at in the future. Like what is the backlash for the players from these groups when they don't perform? How much is this, this love and affection really conditional on how they do. Um, and then the other piece of it is how politicized they are. So Colin Kaepernick, for example, he's taken a, a polarizing political stance and Salah specifically does not speak out about politics he almost never speaks out about nothing about islamophobia or the status of muslims or you know what's happening to the muslims in china and that he really keeps quiet and it's a very strategic decision i believe on his part not to get engaged and that actually is part of the widespread appeal i think because it's just by definition if you take on a political stance where half the country is going to disagree with you that's half the country you've lost in terms of prejudice reduction it's not going to work for those people And the last piece of it is this positive media coverage. So the media generally has been very kind to Salah. These other examples I just gave you from other Premier League uh, players, they have not been kind to them. And it's hard to know, hard to predict who the media is going to choose to cover positively or not. So those are kind of the three pieces that we're hoping to look at more systematically in the future.
1: You know, if you think about the two sides of that, the super successful um, celebrity or athlete who is, who's basically championing your highest values and ensuring that your team thrive and who's not speaking out and, you know, making triggering your guilt and so forth. And if you think about Colin Kaepernick, for example, he wasn't operating at the highest level, not even close to the highest level. And so, I mean, that's fascinating. And Mm -hmm. the only other person that I can think of similar to Salah would be Michael Jordan. And Mm -hmm. that I remember, I remember being a teenager and one of my closest friends at the time. And I grew up as a kid in North Carolina. Me and this white kid who came from vastly different backgrounds would sit and watch Michael Jordan almost damn near cuddled up. Like it was like watching Jordan was so much bigger than race. And I think um, Tiger Woods would also be similar in that way. The only person that kind of defies this would be sort of Muhammad Ali. But then he also went through this weird kind of phase before he became a darling, right? Like he was hated for a while and then eventually his excellence, you know, his aspirational excellence won people over. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what you guys come up with because it definitely seems to me on my side, if people are really championing and inspiring people and their highest values are being met and they shut up, (laughs) unfortunately, they seem to, you know, inspire. Oftentimes people assume, especially on the social media, there's this knee-jerk kind of emotional assumption that we're going to change everything overnight. You know, if you take someone like Salah or Jordan, being able to show and demonstrate and measure that they have made a significant impact, but we just still have more work to do. Mm -hmm. Do you think people are impatient? Do we need to be more patient?
0: There's a question of how long term these kinds of effects are, and how robust and resilient they are when some polarizing moments happen in the country, so maybe Salah has had this you know amazing effect. I mean we find that he reduced uh, hate crimes in Merseyside on Merseyside, where Liverpool is, and he 's reduced anti Muslim tweeting among Liverpool fans compared to fans of the other big clubs. But the question is if there 's another Brexit or there's a terrorist attack or some other flashpoint moment that kind of pits Muslims against uh, Muslim Brits against other Brits, how long term and robust are those effects? And that's an open question for us as well. So with this, this literature on uh, celebra- exposure to celebrities and prejudice reduction, I think it's important to differentiate between two goals. One is, let's say, social justice, and the other is reducing prejudice toward people from your group. So, based on this very preliminary evidence that, that we have and is still very early stage, so again, we hope to look at this more in the future. But I would argue that um, someone like Michael Jordan or Salah, who are clearly from a disadvantaged minority group, and that 's very salient, but they don 't speak out on behalf of that group. Jordan you know famously said Republicans and Democrats all by jordan's mm. like he didn 't get involved in politics at all. Salah never get, speaks out about anything to do with like the Muslim cause or Uh, integrating Muslims in Britain or really anywhere else in the world. I think that kind of that kind of public life is maybe better suited to reducing prejudice across the whole. You're just more likable. You're less polarizing. But if your goal is social justice and actually calling attention to these issues and taking action and campaigning, you're going to get the Kaepernicks and the Marcus Rashford's and the Muhammad Ali's. And that's a totally different goal. So I, what I want to say is I don't want people to take away that celebrities should just, you know, shut up and dribble, um, I'm just saying that for these two different goals, if, if your goal is for people to just like your group on the whole, then taking a polarizing stance may not be the way to do it necessarily, which is kind of a difficult thing to wrap your head around. And, you know, we'll, we'll see if that actually bears out in the data, but that's my, that's what, what it's looking like right now.
1: Thank you. I'm going to point people to this study. So people, there's a lot of detail in this study. In fact, there's the Manny effect, can you share a little bit about the Manny effect?
0: Yeah. So when we came out with this paper about how does exposure to Muhammad Salah reduce Islamophobia, and we look at Liverpool fans, really, because they're, they're the people who are going to have the most intense contact and kind of vicarious relationship with Salah. Uh, then we had a lot of pushback, which we anticipated, which is, hey, there's another Muslim on the team who is just as practicing and just as visible, who is Sadio Mane. And in fact, he's, you know, plays as well as Salah, if not better. Uh, so how do you know that this is really a Salah effect and not Mane? So we, dig it, we dug into this a little bit. We, we uh, exploited the fact that um, Mane joined the team at a different time to Salah. So we reran our analysis around the time period where Mane joined. And we do see a bit of a Mane effect as well on reducing Islamophobic tweets, um, but not as much as Salah. And we kind of speculate about this a little bit. And the two reasons we think that Salah was more was seen as more representative of Islam, which is, you know, obviously, this is just people's perceptions. It doesn't mean he's any more Muslim. Sure. But one is that Arabs are generally more associated with Islam than Africans. So this even among Muslims, there is the stigmatization of African Muslims. They're seen as somehow being less Muslim or something like they don't speak Arabic, or and in the minds of many British fans as well, like probably that's the case that they don't associate Mane. His name is not, you know, Muhammad. It's not. He doesn't have like a beard. He's, you know, for for them, he's, he could just he's just an African player of, you know, maybe a mysterious background religiously. When he does pray and this kind of thing, the fans will pick up on it, but it's not the most salient thing about him. And secondly. Um, Mane is not as heavily covered in the media. He's not so much of a darling. He's still covered quite positively and fans love him, but Salah was really the superstar. Like he really just catapulted to this, to a whole nother level of celebrity. Like he's in Pepsi commercials with, uh, with Messi you know Mane is not there he's a bit more uh, introverted he doesn't have so much of a public persona so I think those two things not really being linked to Islam in the minds of fans which you need in order for these effects to extend to other Muslims you need to see that one person you, as being representative in some way um, so I think he's not seen as being as representative and he and the exposure is not as intense to him off the field.
1: Yeah I'm wondering as you're speaking I'm thinking about Trevor Noah and mm-hmm. how I had a chance to engage Trevor a little bit and I'm And I know he's really passionate about removing the stigma of Africa, exposing Mm. people more to Africa, but because he is not representative of of what people have in their mind, I'm wondering if it's having any effect. I do see him Mm. pushing a lot in his show to Mm. try to accomplish some of those goals, but it'd be interesting. I noticed now he hasn't cut his hair during lockdown and he's got an Afro and I'm wondering if that's part of his goal, but.
0: I mean, this is fascinating. Actually, this is actually a very critical point. So contact scholars will tell you that someone has to be seen as representative of the group in order for these effects, any positive effects, not just to be limited to that one person you meet, but so that you become more positive toward the entire group. There has to be some link in your head between that one person and the whole group. And so there's actually a big tension, I think in this psychological literature, because on the one hand, they say the person has to be representative. On the other hand, they say they have to be counter stereotypical. So if they're representative but they're reinforcing stereotypes, that's not going to change anyone's beliefs. So that's the tension I think is there. Yeah. The other tension that I think is there is that I don't think there's really, I mean, you brought up a good example here um, of if someone grows out an Afro, they would be seen as more representative, but I'm really, and I want to know your opinion on this. I feel like whether you see someone as exceptional or not is itself a function of your prejudice. So there is no represent- perfectly representative African, you know? And if you meet one and you like them and you say, oh, but they're not like the rest of them, they're special, then that is itself a type of prejudice. Like you are. So it's not like, I think that's kind of an outcome that we're interested in. There's no objective reality of whether someone is representative or not.
1: Yeah, I I find, for example, being an American living in South Africa, that the representation they have of a Black American is probably closer to Chris Brown or, you know, some sort of artist versus Mm -hmm. someone who's interested in these ideas that we're speaking about. And so I do know instinctively that it is coming from some sort of prejudice that they go, wow, you speak so well or you, whatever. But there are times, for example, where if you think of some of Africa's larger sort of popular exports like Nelson Mandela, they do sort of align with what people have in their mind about an African in terms of how they speak, their accent and so forth.
0: But I mean, the question for me is like, if, when someone sees Nelson Mandela, do they actually see him as representative of Africans or do they think that he's a massive exception? That's my, and I feel like whether you see someone as exceptional, if you're prejudiced, you're going to see them as exceptional. So it's kind of like a, There's some logical flaw there. So like the contact theory would predict you meet Mandela. He's seen as representative. If he's seen as representative, then you become more tolerant. But the question is that if he's seen as representative, if you are intolerant, you're not going to see him as representative. So the the chain is broken there. Um, But I think there's something in what you're saying, like the fact that he has that that accent, for example, like there are some maybe objective measures of representativeness um, yeah, yeah. So I think there's there's. A, yeah. But I just think about all the time someone says, oh, I'm not racist. I have a black friend. "Oh, I'm not homophobic. I have a gay friend. But you yeah. clearly see that person is an exception. You're not you're not drawing any broader inferences based on your positive experience precisely because you might actually have an issue.
1: We could take everyone's brain out and we could slice it open and count the number of neural connections and synapses that were that defined a particular stereotype. Mm. and we were to look at the role that Hollywood, if we could figure out a way, look at how Hollywood and popular meter and popular culture had created those um, neural connections in the brain. When you say that a big part of this is looking at, I mean, I really wish we could study this. We could really look at how, how many connections does it take for you to be, lean towards social cohesion. Because if I look at my grandfather, for example, who grew up in the South, he probably knew zero uh, young black people like me who had written a book, like zero. So it would make sense for him to have some level of bias towards you know, the fact that I should not be writing. I should go do something else, right?
0: You actually raise a really uh, interesting and still open question about all of this contact stuff, which is what is the dose that you need? How many counter stereotypical friendly people from a certain group do you need to meet and how intense do and frequent do those interactions have to be in order for you to change your belief? And that's really an open question. I mean, it could be just one person is enough. It could be one person on TV is enough. Um, In other cases, that when the conflict is more salient or it's the one that's more relevant for your daily life, maybe that's where you need 10 examples before it really hits home. And even then, we don't know how fragile or how robust that effect is. So honestly, this is a huge open question in the research is how often do people have to connect and under what conditions uh, are needed for these kinds of effects to unfold?
1: I think that was part of the reason why people were so disappointed after President Obama, right? It was like, okay, we now have contact with a Black American Mm. uh, who's become president for eight years. So shouldn't the entire world see Black people differently? That's an (laughs) excellent
0: counterexample.
1: Yeah. And I think, don't you think that's Mm. why there was, there is so much frustration now in this social justice movement. It's like, we should be further along. We've had Mm. this contact.
0: The one thing I'll say to the Obama example is, one of the key conditions of contact, so it's not just any old contact that's going to do the job. One of the key conditions is that the contact should be cooperative. You're cooperating for a common goal. You're not adversarial. You're not competitive. And for Obama, if you look at you know, large swaths of the population who didn't like Obama during those eight years, they did not have a common goal with him in their minds.
1: I see. I that see. was
0: competitive contact. And so if, you're against, if you feel like you're being pitted against someone, then you're, you're, none of these effects are going to unfold.
1: Okay, perfect. That's a perfect segue to this second study, which is about building social cohesion between Christians and Muslims through soccer in post-ISIS Iraq. Take us into the environment. You know, did you partner with a local university to, to pull this off? Just take us there.
0: Sure. So I was fortunate enough that I uh, knew some people working for this Christian community organization, an Iraqi Christian community organization who was offering services and um, just really taking care of displaced Christians who had been displaced by ISIS as well as other groups as well. And this was uh, back in the aftermath of 2014 when ISIS took over Mosul and the surrounding areas in northern Iraq and Syria. That involved also the ethnic cleansing of religious minorities. You might remember the Yazidis who were trapped on a mountain, which is a very tragic story. Um, yes. And they also targeted Christians and, other, and Muslim groups as well in the area. And so this organization was serving these displaced people and they really had a a desire to, one, do a large scale survey and document people's stories in that moment of time when they were displaced. And on the other hand, they also wanted to provide some service, some programming, you know, to pass the days. And when we did some focus groups, it became clear very quickly that there was a large local demand for, for soccer leagues, for amateur soccer leagues. And so we set this uh, myself and the research staff and and the staff from this organization, we set up this series of soccer leagues and we wanted to test this idea of whether playing on the same soccer team as a Muslim. Remember, everyone is displaced. The Muslims are also displaced, whether that can build social cohesion among these displaced people. Uh, So that was that was the start of this project.
1: Got it. And your findings were quite fascinating. In the early part of the season, were you surprised at what you were finding in the early part? Were there any moments where there was just like, whoa?
0: So the main finding of the study is that we did actually build cohesion among the players in the league. So when they met each other and that bond on the team and in the league, that really did change people's behaviors and attitudes toward those other people. But it didn't necessarily extend off the pitch. So these Christians were not changing their minds about Muslims more generally. Um, So on this question of how did they change their attitudes and behaviors toward people on their team and in the league, we definitely saw this playing out. Uh, So at the beginning, there was a lot of reluctance on both sides. Uh, The Christian players, for example, were not speaking Arabic. They were speaking their own dialect, which the Muslim players couldn't understand. And the coaches actually intervened and said, OK, we're now going to be speaking only Arabic so that everyone understands. Um, You saw them sitting a bit closer to each other on the bench. As time went on, we started hearing a story about one of the mixed teams that the Christian players had chipped in to cover the taxi fare of the Muslim guys on their team. Um, We saw another mixed team just out on the town. They went to go watch the Champions League final and they had invited their Muslim teammates. And this seems, you know, very trivial maybe, but in this context, Muslims cannot enter restaurants or bars in these towns. They check your ID and they do not let Muslims in. So to have these Christian players like haggling with the staff and to allow their, their Muslim friends to come in, that's a big deal. That's actually socially quite a costly thing to do. Um, And so these, these, these friendships that formed were just really, it was really nice to see them just hanging out and staying in touch and, you know, going to parties and, you know, well after the leagues ended.
1: If you're advising any sort of government or anyone? Because you do work as an advisor a little, right?
0: A little bit, yeah. A little. <laughs> yeah, no, I do, I do some consulting around social cohesion uh, programming.
1: Yeah, so, so let's shift a bit because I'm going to put both of these research studies, I'm going to put both of them in the link so people can read and go into Great. real depth with these. There's a lot of conflict dynamics that are happening at the moment where it's difficult to build cohesion in the workplace, because you've got people obviously taking, you know, various political sides. What are some of the lessons that we could sort of draw? And what would you share um, if you were trying to build cohesion in this sort of conflict environment?
0: So I would say two things. The first is, to the extent that it's possible, if there are these national institutions, these touchstone institutions where a lot of people go through them and they are actually ethnically mixed... So things like public hospitals or public schools or military training, those kinds of spaces where mixing is happening. There is a way to design what those interactions look like and give the scaffolding to make sure that those interactions can actually have 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 a meaningful impact on intergroup relations. So things like making sure people are matched based on the same skill level as much as possible, that they're cooperating, they're not competing against each other. Um, these kinds of little tweaks can make all the difference. Um, On the other hand, in spaces where people don't have that kind of mixing, if you have a really segregated neighborhood or, um, yeah, that's the classic example where they're not having that kind of face-to-face interaction, then there are other tools that we have to still improve intergroup relations. So it could be, if you're a celebrity, this is my message to South African celebrities who belong to minority groups you shouldn't be afraid to talk about your identity as being in that minority group, just in a non-politicized way. Like if you, if you're a Muslim and it's Ramadan and you're fasting, you should post about that on Instagram. Why not? Let people know that. So they make that connection between you to see you as representative and not an exception. Um, Talk about your culture. People are interested. People want it that you might be their only window into an entire culture. And that's a big opportunity if you want to use it that way. And then we also have other tools like um, empathy building curriculum or perspective taking exercises or other ways that we can teach people the skills that they need without necessarily having the face-to-face contact if that's not possible. Um, but, but those are my two big uh, recommendations. And this is all to say, by the way, a big disclaimer on this is if you have structural roots of inequality and structural sources of conflict, none of what I'm talking about is going to substitute for that.
1: Got if it. you have you structural deal with
0: the systemic, yeah, yeah, if you have structural systemic inequality, that needs to be dealt with. Um, but my view is that combining these grassroots programs as well as the policy level tools—that is really the magic combination to get sustainable peace. So uh, my folk, my research is really on the bottom half of that, but the whole top half needs to be totally rearranged in South Africa.
1: Sure, sure. Let's talk quickly about affirmative action. And I don't want to get into the politics of affirmative action at all. I want to say that I, so I've written, there's a newspaper that I wrote a column for, for almost a decade. And in this column, I became sort of a big brother and people would often email me and say that I've been put in this position because we, affirmative action, we have to transform the environment, but I don't feel capable I don't feel like I have the skill sets and they're going to put me on a trajectory where I will eventually get those skill sets, but I mm-hmm. don't have them now. Mm-hmm. And obviously that person is vulnerable and, you know, it's going to trigger from the other side of the group. You know, it's going to create a lot of conflict in the environment. What would you say to both sides in that space?
0: It's so tricky. And I think about this question a lot. So one thing I found in Iraq and it's to an extent also in the Salah paper as well, the importance of underlying skill, the importance of when the contact happens, that people are somewhat skill matched. If you start, otherwise, you there's a risk, a real risk of starting to resent the minority group person because they are not seen as pulling their weight or they're not as good. And there you are gonna you could potentially have the opposite effect, a backlash where your prejudice actually increases because of that experience. And this goes back to like very very fundamental evolutionary psychology where you want if you you see people as members of a team and can they help your team are they like me and can they help me achieve the team goal and anyone who's seen as like hindering that that's that's a negative thing um, and then you put that in this like social environment where there's prejudice and there's racism okay well now you're gonna you might stigmatize that person even more so affirmative action is really tricky because you're actively drawing on people who actually may not have exactly the same match skill set but it's because you're taking this longer horizon you're taking a longer time view where you think that eventually people from that group will be lifted up and eventually have the skills where they can be equal Um, so i'd say if i had to speculate on this i'd say that affirmative action in the short run could actually increase prejudice if the skill gap is big but in the long run, like, you know, from a practical perspective, you need to get some people into this pipeline and you need to train them and it has to start somewhere. And in the long run, once you start getting like a critical mass of people from that group who actually do start to be trained up to that level and it starts to perpetuate, um, then maybe we just need to take a longer term view for something like affirmative action. And we take the hit to, to prejudice at the beginning, but the, the goal is in the long term that we do cultivate this critical mass of people from that group who, who are good enough at this particular skill.
1: If you are a manager or leader in an environment where there's a clear mismatch or a skills gap, do you try to find strengths or other skills or other values where the person who's weaker is better in and emphasize those to try to balance the environment to to highlight? Because there are certain skills that are often just trumpeted over others but maybe as a leader and a manager you could really drive home the point that this is bringing bottom line value what would you say about that
0: that sounds like a great idea to me I mean the important thing is that people feel like they are all contributing to a common goal and everyone is bringing something to the table that's getting us closer to the common goal what you'd have to then do as a manager again it's just me speculating on this but my instinct would say you need to do two things. You need to highlight maybe the different skill set that's being brought. And at the same time, you have to show that that skill set directly helps the team. So if you're, yes. you're going to say, oh, this person has a diverse viewpoint and they're going to you know, help us, under, you know, they, they bring this diversity angle in and of itself, maybe that is not something that helps someone's bottom line. If you can connect it to the bottom line, oh, they can, under, they can help us understand the user experience of this really critical demographic. Um, or they can have so something like that would be, I think would go a long way because ultimately you need to show that everyone is bringing something to the table, um, in a way that is seen as valuable
1: by everyone. I am really grateful Selma, for your research and I really, am excited about following your work. What would you recommend people follow you to get more uh, of these type of insights?
0: Yeah, well, I hope that I can be in- insightful, uh, to continue to be insightful I and mean, that's very kind Uh, I'm pretty active on Twitter, not as much as other people, but that's that tends to be where I uh, share new research. And you can also find my working papers on my website as well.
1: Salma Musa, thank you so much for joining us on the Brain and Brand Show.
0: It was a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much for listening. A huge thanks to Dr. Salma Musa. What a delight. Please check out her website, www.salmamusa.com. And do share this episode with someone who wants to bring people together. Until next time.